You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, it is our delight to gather around your word. We hunger for truth. We hunger for righteousness. We long to see Christ revealed in the pages of Scripture and to know him more. So we pray that you would satisfy that hunger that we have today, that you would send your spirit to feed us and to teach us from your word and help this very challenging passage of Scripture to be clear to us, help us to see it, to understand it, and to get a, a grasp on it that we might give to you obedience and, and loving adoration of which you are due. Thank you for such a great Savior. Thank you for your word. And we ask that you grant us clarity this morning in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 10, we're going to begin reading at verse 30. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, You are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. Now that passage of Scripture, beginning at verse 34, for years was a mystery to me. Uh, maybe it's clear to everybody here, but I spent the first several years of my Christian life uh, laboring to understand the deity of Christ. And this passage, verse 34 and following, always mystified me. I never could really get a grasp of what Jesus was saying when he answered the Jews, what what argument he was making, why he was quoting the Old Testament, and and what point he was trying to drive home. And uh, in fact, when discussing this passage or discussing the deity of Christ with Jehovah's Witnesses who would stop by my door, I would always avoid verses 30 and following because I wasn't sure if they got into verse 34 that I would have an answer for their objection, and I knew what their answer or their objection would be. If I said that verse 30 was an bold and unambiguous claim to to be God by Jesus, they would say, no, verse 34, he quotes the Old Testament and just says, does not the Old Testament say you are gods? And all Jesus is doing is saying that he is a God, little g, in the same way that those Old Testament men were called gods, little g. That's all he's doing. And for years, I didn't think I would really have an adequate answer for that, so I kind of Uh, just put it off and I read and I read commentaries on it, but I never could really get a handle on what Jesus was getting at and what he was saying. And about 15 years ago, I woke up one morning to my radio alarm and Moody Radio was on and Alistair Begg was preaching. It was early in the morning. Alistair Begg was preaching and he was going through this passage. And that caught my attention right away. And so I laid there and I listened to explain it. And I thought to myself, well, of course, that makes sense. Why didn't I see that? And I understand that now. And I was intrigued by it and I listened to it. Turns out I wasn't as awake as I thought I was. I fell back asleep and I woke back up. I had no idea what Alistair Begg had said about the passage. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. I still to this day have no idea what Alistair Begg said about the passage, but I know it was probably right. 
And several years after that, then I finally sat down and I I worked my way through this little chunk of Scripture because I really wanted to get a handle on it. And I'm going to share with you today what Jesus is doing in these verses, verses 34 through 36. And we're just going to get through verses 34 to 36 this morning. Uh, Even though I didn't know what the passage meant and I didn't know really how I would answer it, I I didn't know it as well as I know other passages of Scripture, there were certain things that I did know for sure. For instance, I knew for sure that Jesus was not contradicting other passages of Scripture. So I knew that Jesus was not then saying that he was less than God because John had already told us in so many other ways that Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. He was God. He was the Word that became flesh. In John chapter 5, Jesus explained his divine sonship and the implications of it. In chapter 6, we see the deity of Christ proclaimed and illustrated again with him being the bread of life. In chapter 8, he says, unless you believe that I am the eternal God, you will die in your sins. And so we see the deity of Christ in all of those passages of Scripture. So I knew, even though I didn't know exactly what Jesus was saying, I knew he wasn't contradicting himself. He wasn't saying back in chapters 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 that I am God and now saying, well, I'm not really God, God, I'm just kind of a God. Or a little God, a God with a little G. Second, even though I didn't understand what the passage necessarily meant, I also knew that Jesus was not backing down out of cowardice. He wasn't afraid that just because they picked up stones and brought them to him to stone him, I knew that Jesus wasn't trying to explain this in such a way sort of to backpedal. Well, I'm really not God, I'm just kind of a God. I knew he wasn't backing down out of cowardice. And then third, I knew that he was not just trying to conciliate the Jews. In other words, he wasn't trying to explain his Godhead in such a way as to not offend them so that they might then think, oh, that's all you mean. Okay, well, we thought you meant this. and All right, we can see what you're saying, so we're not as offended. Jesus was not concerned with whether or not he offended them. He claimed to be God in chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. That is a bold and unambiguous claim to equality in nature with the Father. They picked up stones to stone him, not because they misunderstood what he was claiming. In fact, just the opposite is true. They understood exactly what he was claiming. That's why they picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus' explanation is not intended to backpedal. It's not intended to conciliate them and to, to, to gain their favor. His, his explanation or his answer to their charge of blasphemy is intended to point out the hypocrisy of their reaction because he was God. And if Jesus was not God, then this would have been the perfect opportunity for him to say such. For instance, when they said, it's not for a good work that we stone, or good work that we stone you, but it's for what you say, because you being a man make yourself out to be God. If Jesus was not God, this would have been the perfect opportunity to say, whoa, hold on a second. Wait, 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 wait. Put the rocks down for just a second. You thought I was claiming to be God? I wasn't claiming to be God. I'm sorry for the misunderstanding. That's why you've been hostile to me for all these years, for two and a half years, is because you thought I was claiming to be God? No, no, it's just the opposite. I'm here to tell you I'm just a moral teacher. I'm just a normal man. I'm just a good rabbi who does good deeds. I'm just a miracle-working prophet. This would have been the opportunity for him to clear that up. But he doesn't clear it up because there was no misunderstanding. The only thing that they did misunderstand was in their presuppositions. They presupposed him to be a mere man who claimed to be God. But they understood his claim perfectly well. So let me offer to you the the outline for these next few verses. We're going to look, first of all, at Jesus' appeal to the Old Testament Scripture. And then second, to his argument from the lesser to the greater. And then third, his appeal to his works. Now, I know that's not, not, not the funnest sounding outline, but I do think it will help us to sort of structure our thinking around this passage. Begins with an appeal to the Old Testament scriptures. He says in verse 35, sorry, verse 34, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are God's? Now, I want you to stop there for just a second. 
Notice that Jesus appeals to the Old Testament text. It is written. Now, ultimately, isn't that not the final and most authoritative appeal that anybody could make? It is. If, if Jesus is going to discuss this situation or this issue with them, he ultimately has to appeal, and he's going to appeal to Scripture, and that's what he does. He simply, he simply appeals to the Old Testament text. Has it not been written? Because as Christians, we must say that if it is written, then it is certain. If it is written, then the question is answered. That's it. It doesn't matter what the Pope says, what councils say, what traditions say, what the elders say, denominational headquarters say, it doesn't matter what science says, what culture says, what the courts say, what Congress declares, none of that is relevant in the least. All of them fail, all of them are wrong. Ultimately, our appeal is, what is written? And you say, well, you make that appeal even to an unbeliever. What if you said to an unbeliever, it's written? This is what God's Word said. And the unbeliever said to you, look, I don't, I don't believe that that's God's Word. I don't believe the Bible is God's Word. What would you say to that? You know what my response is? I don't care whether you believe it's God's Word or not. It is, and it's true, and you're wrong. That's it. And it's not because I'm right. It's that this book is right. And ultimately, this is what we appeal to. It is written. Second, I want you to know that Jesus, notice that Jesus not only appeals to that which is is written, but he appeals to an obscure passage in the Old Testament. An obscure passage. Psalm 82. Psalm 82. Now, when I said Psalm 82, had we not just read it at the beginning of the sermon uh, service, I doubt that you would have said to yourself, oh, I'm familiar with Psalm 82. Yeah, I know what Psalm 82 is about. Anybody here familiar with Psalm 82? Just off the top of your head, you know what that psalm is about? Probably not. It's a rather obscure portion of the Old Testament. And by obscure, I just mean that it was not like Psalm 23. I say Psalm 23, you know what that is, right? Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 119, that big long psalm about the Word of God. You're familiar with that psalm. Uh, psalm 51, David's psalm of repentance. Psalm 1, the, the man of God who, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Those are sort of landmark psalms that we are familiar with. Jesus appeals to an obscure psalm from the Old Testament, a lesser known psalm. Not only that, but listen, he actually quotes a phrase from a verse that is not even the, the thrust of the psalm. The verse is more of a detail of the psalm really than the gist of the whole psalm. And not only that, but Jesus hinges his entire argument on one word, the word God's in that psalm. One word. One word from a rather obscure verse, from a rather obscure psalm. Now let that be a lesson to us, and I think it should be. Jesus had such a command of the Old Testament Scriptures that he was familiar with even the more obscure or lesser known parts of the the pages of the Old Testament. You and I can have fall into the tendency or fall into the trap of being so familiar with certain passages of Scripture that we unwittingly and maybe even negligently neglect those certain passages in the Old Testament. I wish it were true of God's people that all of us had a command. All of us, including myself, had a command of all the details of even the most obscure passages of Scripture, a command of it like Jesus had here in John chapter 10. All right, now if we're going to understand what Jesus is saying and his argument, then guess where we're going to have to turn? Some of you are already doing it. I see you flipping back. Psalm 82, that's right. If Jesus is going to quote from Psalm 82, then we want to make sure that we know what Psalm 82 is all about. So turn back to the 82nd Psalm. And you're there quickly because I told you to put a bookmark in there. Psalm 82. This is a psalm of judgment, and it is a psalm of rebuke towards the leaders of the nation of Israel, their judges and their rulers. It's written by Asaph. You see that from the the little notation there above verse 1. And I would just remind you that those little notations that you see, however long or short they are, are part of the text of Scripture. Those are not ancillary to the text of Scripture. They're not editor's notes. They're not, they're not John MacArthur's little summary of the psalm or introduction to the psalm. Those are actually inspired texts of Scripture as well. A psalm of Asaph, even though that's introducing the psalm, it's, it's still inspired Scripture. 
And I want to remind you before we look at this psalm how Old Testament Jews would view quotations from the Old Testament. It's important for us to remember this. When a Jew heard somebody quote a passage from the Old Testament, they just didn't think of that phrase or that word. They would actually, a quotation of a passage would call to their mind, call back to their mind, all of the context of that passage of Scripture. For instance, if I say to you, as the hymn writer says, when we've been there 10,000 years, what's the next phrase? Bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing His praise than when we first begun. What song is that from? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Written by John Newton, the, sl- the slave trader and the man who was a wretch. And, and uh, his mom was a Christian and his dad was. See, just that phrase, when we've been there 10,000 years, would call to your mind, if you're familiar with the song, the whole song, maybe even the background of the song and the author of the song. Same thing with the Jews. When Jesus quotes this one phrase, I said you are God's, the Jew would instantly think of the entire psalm. It calls to their mind the entire psalm. They're thinking of the whole context. That's why we want to get familiar with the whole context. Now verse 1, it's a psalm of judgment. Verse 1, God takes His stand in His own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. Now verse 1 sets an ominous tone for the psalm. You and I are to read this, God takes His stand. And we are to go, who? When God takes His stand... Let all the earth tremble. When God takes His stand, what does this stand for? He is judging in the midst of the rulers. And where does God take His stand? He takes His stand in or among His congregation. So why is God concerned about this situation? Because God is standing amongst His people. These are the people that He has called, the nation of Israel, the Jews. His nation, His people, through whom He's going to bring the Messiah. God is now standing amongst the congregation, the gathering of His people. And you and I are supposed to read verse 1, and it instantly sets a very ominous tone. Whoa! God is standing. God is taking His stand. All the people should listen. Why is God taking His stand? To judge among the rulers of His people. And this psalm is addressed to the rulers of God's people. The judges, the rulers, the religious leaders, the kings, and the people who are in authority, whom God had placed there. These are the ones that are in view. Now look at verse 2. How long will you judge unjustly? and show partiality to the wicked. Selah. Now, Selah was likely a musical notation that they would use for a break in the music or a pause. It was not something that was intended to be read or pronounced. It was likely a musical notation. So we are supposed to get to the end of verse 2, and we are to read it. How long will you judge unjustly? This is God speaking to the wicked rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Now, pause and reflect upon that for a second. The men who were intended to execute the law of God's righteousness, justice, and equity, and fairness, and holiness, they have instead perverted that justice and they have begun to show favoritism to the wicked. Selah. Pause. And just think about what a horrible indictment and a horrible situation that is. Then verse 3, what were they doing? Here's the correction to them. Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. This is what they should have been doing. And the implication is that they were doing just the opposite. They were taking the weak and the afflicted and the oppressed and the needy, and these men were using their position of power and their influence, which God had given them. They were using that in order to deliver those oppressed, weak and needy and afflicted, to deliver them not out of their oppression, but into the hands 
of the wicked. They were using their positions of power to exploit the weak, and they should have been delivering them. To afflict the afflicted, and they should have been using it to deliver them. They were supposed to do what God would do. What would God do? God would deliver the orphan. God would look out for the afflicted and the needy. These are the things that these men, as representatives of God, were supposed to be doing, but they weren't. Instead, they were doing the exact opposite. They were showing partiality to the wicked. And verse 5 says, They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. They are benighted. They are ignorant. They are dumb. They are without understanding. They don't understand truth. They don't understand righteousness. They don't understand God's law. They don't understand God's holiness. They don't understand what justice and equity and fairness look like. These are wicked men who walk about in darkness. So benighted and so blinded, they walk about and they go about their daily lives in utter and complete moral darkness. This is the rulers of the land. These are the men who held the power. They are benighted and in darkness morally, spiritually, Ethically, politically, it is one dark vacuum of oppression and injustice and ignorance and benighted wickedness and iniquity. And what happens to a land that lives under rulers that fit that description? Look at the end of verse 5. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Culturally, morally, politically, ethically, Physically, you feel like the the ground is shaking under your feet, like everything is coming undone, and like all of the structures that should be sure and secure are about to come tottering. They are tottering and they are about to come crashing down around you. And you look around and you say, what is happening to this world? This is insane. This is an insane asylum and the inmates are running it. Everything is crumbling. Everything's coming undone. Nothing is certain. Nothing is sure. Nothing is right. Up is down, down is up, black is white, white is black. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Everything is coming undone and nothing is certain. Now I know it is very difficult for you to imagine thinking that and living in a world that is like that. But I just want you to try and imagine what that would be like. Everything just feels shaken and like it is just dissolving around you. Such is the moral and ethical and religious wickedness of a nation when the wicked rule. When the wicked rule, the proverb says, the people groan. Oh, it's just heavy. Oh, it just, the righteous groan under that oppression. Do you feel that? Now look at verse 6. I said, you are gods. And all of you are sons of the Most High. Now who is the psalmist speaking to? He's speaking again to the rulers of the nation of Israel, the spiritual leaders, the rulers, the kings, the judges, God says, or the psalmist says, I said, you are gods. Now, what does he mean by that? Why does he call them gods? And the word is Elohim, which is the plural form of the word God. Elohim is a a name for God in the Old Testament. Uh, That word could be used to describe false idols or the gods of the nations or the gods who are ignorant or the the other gods of the peoples, the gods who are nothing. And here it is used to describe these, these wicked, unjust rulers. This is God saying, or God's word saying, you are gods. So in what sense are these men gods? Let me rule out one possibility. It does not mean and it cannot mean that these people are actually divine beings with the attributes of omnipotence and omnipresence and and omniscience. They're not actual divine God beings. These are not actual deities. It can't be that. Why? Because they're wicked. They're unjust. They're immoral. They're benighted. They walk in darkness. So the God is not describing these men as gods because they are actually gods. There's something else at play here. And here's what it is. 
He is calling them gods because these men in a theocratic nation where God should have been the king, these men as their rulers acted in the position of God. It was their job to do what God would have done. Deliver the weak, help the needy, uh, provide for the needy, uh, deliver the afflicted, take care of the orphans and the widows and see that justice and righteousness are done. And when a man transgresses the law, they were to execute justice and judgment in the land. They were to not favor the wicked, but they were to bring justice to the wicked. And they were doing the opposite. These men as rulers literally had the power of life and death over the people of the nation. And so in the eyes of the people, as God's representative, these rulers were gods. They had the power of life and death. They were to function over the nation as God's representatives just as if God himself were ruling. That was their responsibility. And so here's the mockery. I said to you, you are gods, because that was their function. That was their office. Their God-ordained function and office was to execute the law of God and to demonstrate God's righteousness. And in that sense, they are called gods. Are they really divine beings? No, they are sons of the Most High. That's a, that's a clue that they are not the Most High. They are sons of the Most High. Not sons in the sense that you and I think of being sons of God, justified, redeemed, adopted into God's family, uh, saved. Not sons in that sense. Sons in the Old Testament sense of being Jews or belonging to God's people. Right? They are sons of Him nationally, not salvifically. So they're sons of the Most High. And even though they had this godlike, exalted position and this godlike function, look at verse 7. Nevertheless, you will die like men. You will not be able to escape the judgment. And that, that phrase, you will die like men, may be even a rebuke to them and how they were thinking. Sometimes people who get in positions of power, like say Congress, the presidency, being a king or a ruler or whatever, they can start to think of themselves as kind of a, a bit above the other people, right? right what, what applies to you, hoi polloi, doesn't apply to us. That's how they think. And they begin to treat themselves and think of themselves almost like they are in a godlike position. And they begin to presume that their power and their position will deliver them on the day of judgment. And here's God's promise. Your position on the day of judgment will do nothing for you. It will avail for you nothing because you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes, verse 7. So then the psalmist says, Asaph says, Arise, O God, and judge the earth. And he calls upon God, who is the one true and living God, to come and to judge these men who thought of themselves as gods and were called gods by the people and should have been functioning as God, but they weren't. He's calling upon the one true God to come and judge these false gods who were the rulers of the people. And you got that? Because God possesses all of the nations. So that's Psalm 82. Who are the gods being spoken of? They are the rulers and the judges of the nation of Israel who were wicked and unjust men. They sat in a godlike position, exercising a godlike function, and they were viewed by the people as God's representative to the people. And so in that sense, they are gods to the people. Now back to John 10. Let's see what Jesus does with this. John chapter 10. You're getting a bonus today because you're actually getting two passages of Scripture, right? Psalm 82 and John 10. So we've looked at Jesus' appeal to the Old Testament Scripture in verse 34. Now I want you to look at his argument from the lesser to the greater. And I'm going to explain this in just a second. Jesus is going to argue from the lesser to the greater. Now before we look at verse 35 and 36, catch something that is key. And it's not understanding this that perplexed me about this whole passage for so long. Listen to this carefully. Jesus is not using Psalm 82 to argue for his deity. This is key. He's not using Psalm 82 to argue for his deity. 
He's not appealing to Psalm 82 and saying, look, I said I'm God and here's where the Old Testament teaches that I'm God. That's not what he's arguing from Psalm 82. It's not as if Jesus is saying, look, others were called gods. They had that nickname and I'm kind of like them. Therefore, I should have that nickname too. That's not what he's doing. And he's not using this passage of Scripture to prove to them that he's God. You know what proves to them that he was God? It's not Psalm 82. It was his works. That's why verses 37 and 38, he says, if you don't believe what I say, believe the works that I do. They demonstrate that he was who he was. That's what the proof was. So he's not arguing from Psalm 82 that he is God. He's not using that to prove that. Here's what he is doing. He is using Psalm 82 to demonstrate to them that their reaction to his claim was unjustified. They went over the top. When they heard him proclaim this, that he and the Father were one, they went over the top in their reaction. And now Jesus is quoting that, and what he's going to show is, look, you have no problem with this. So why are you objecting to something that I'm doing, which is the same thing but far greater? That's where he's going with it. So keep that in mind. All right, verse 35. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came. I want you to stop right there. That's the first premise of his argument. He called them God to whom the word of God came. So who is he calling gods? The unjust ruler. So he's going back and he's saying the psalmist or the psalm or the law, whatever the he there refers to, it's kind of generic. Whatever that refers to, he in the scriptures called those men gods. And they were men to whom the word of God came. These were not men who themselves were sources of divine revelation. These are men who were under divine revelation. These are men to whom the prophets spoke and the, and the word of God spoke. They were subjects of the word of God itself. These are men to whom the word of God came. If scripture calls them gods, that's the first premise, premise number two, and the scripture cannot be broken, in most modern translations, that's in parentheses, it's more likely the second tenet of his argument. He's not reminding them, remember now, Scripture can't be broken. That's not how he's saying it. He's saying, Scripture calls them gods to whom the Word of God came, those wicked Old Testament judges. Second, Scripture cannot be made void or null or be emptied of its power or proved wrong. It cannot be an error. That's what it means by cannot be broken. Scripture cannot be broken. Therefore, and get ready for the conclusion, but before you do, those two things, he called them gods, Scripture cannot be broken. Those are the two premises of the argument. Now keep that in your mind for just a second. Now remember a couple of key things. What is the difference between Jesus and the Old, these Old Testament wicked rulers? There are three key differences right here in the text. Look at verse 36. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified? That's the first difference. Right? Did, did the Father set apart and sanctify those Old Testament wicked rulers in the same way that he did the divine Son? These men were sanctified, that is, or these men were not sanctified, the divine Son is. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified? At some point in eternity past, amongst the members, the persons of the Godhead, it was decided that the Son would come into the world and take upon himself human flesh. And the Father agreed to that, and the Son agreed to that, and the Spirit agreed to that. All three of them did, and the Father sanctified, that means to set apart and to make holy for a specific purpose. The Father sanctified the Son for that divine work in eternity past. Second, the Father was sent. He was not only sanctified, but, verse 36, He was also sent into the world. Unlike the unjust judges of Psalm 82, the Son is, as a divine being, existed before He was on this earth. And the Father sent Him to this earth. Now that is a statement of Jesus' pre-existence and His unique commission by the Father in a way that none of the Old Testament judges or kings or rulers were ever commissioned by the Father. The Son is sanctified, the Son is sent, and the third key difference is in that phrase, these were men to whom the Word of God came. Do you realize that the Word of God never came to Jesus? 
That's significant. The Word of God came to Moses. The Word of God came to David. The Word of God came to Daniel. The Word of God came to Noah. The Word of God came to all of his Old Testament prophecies, but you will, prophets and, and leaders, but you will never read ever in Scripture that the Word of God came to Jesus. Why? The Word of God didn't come to him when he spoke it was the Word of God. That's it. The Word of God does not come to God. That's the key difference. These men were men to whom the Word of God came. I stand in your presence as one who is the Word of God, not one to whom the Word of God comes. The Word of God doesn't come to him because he is God. That's the difference. Now here's the argument from the lesser to the greater. An argument from the lesser to the greater. With all that in your mind. An argument from the lesser to the greater is this. If you concede this, and this is a small thing, then there is something far greater than this which is of the same kind. If you allow for this and you concede this, then you must at the same time concede this. That's the argument from the lesser to the greater. right? So if, if I'm a good-looking person and Mel is better looking than me, then if you're going to say I'm good-looking, you've got to say he's good-looking. He's better-looking than me. right? So that's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If, if I'm good at basketball and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was good at basketball, then if I'm good, then certainly he's far greater. So if you're going to say that I'm a star, you have to concede that he's a star. That's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Sorry to make an example of you, Mel, but you were right there. If you don't want to be made an example, you're going to have to sit farther back, and I'll pick on Lanny. That's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Now watch how Jesus does this. If the Old Testament passage says that those men were God, and they were wicked men who were completely unworthy of that title, and yet they had that function and they are called gods by function. And you do not object to Asaph calling them gods. You don't say Asaph was a blasphemer. And you don't say that Scripture is blaspheming because Scripture cannot be broken. Scripture is true. So if you concede that Asaph is not blaspheming by calling those wicked and unworthy men gods, then why do you overreact and say that I am blaspheming when I say that I am the Son of God, when I declare myself to be God, and I am actually worthy of that title. Do you catch the argument? They were called this because of their function. I can take this title because of my nature. They had this title because of what they did. I have this title because of who I am. So if you concede that Asaph is not blaspheming, you have no right to object to me, who am not under the Word of God, because I am the Word of God incarnate, you have no right to object to me who does not do wicked deeds but only does what is good. And you have no right to object to me who not just claims to be God or is called God but actually is God. You cannot call me blasphemy for taking that name to myself. That's the argument from the lesser to the greater. You concede that Asaph is not blasphemy because he calls them gods. Those men are completely unworthy of the title. I am infinitely worthy of this title. Therefore, I am not blasphemy by taking this title to myself. Now, Jesus is not grouping himself in with those Old Testament wicked judges. He's not saying, see, they were called gods and I'm just like them, therefore I should have that title too. That's not what he's doing. He's setting himself apart from those men, and infinitely so. If that's not blasphemy to call them gods, (laughs) it is certainly not blasphemy to call the one who actually is God, God. Do you get the argument? That's the reason for Psalm 82. I said last week, if Jesus is not God in human flesh, then verse 30 is a blasphemous statement. Not only is it a blasphemous statement, he deserved to be stoned. And I would be the first to confess that. But if Jesus is God, and for you to reject that is as foolish and unjustifiable, wicked unbelief as anything these Jews face. See, here's, here's the key. They knew 
that he was God. The evidence showed them that. And they rejected the evidence. And that's what he points to in the next couple of verses. He goes to the evidence. Now we've looked at the appeal to the Old Testament Scriptures, and we have looked at his argument from the lesser to the greater. So next week, Lord willing, we will look at his appeal to his works, and then the rest of this passage of Scripture. And we'll also talk about Jesus' view of the Old Testament text. And I hope that that is clearer to you now than it was to me for many years. And I hope that you will remember more of what I just said uh, when you wake up than I did of what Alistair Begg said after I woke up. <laughs> Let's pray together. Our Father, we are truly grateful to you. And your word is so so clear, so great, so grand. And these things are clear to to us when we see them for what they are. And we can see in Scripture Jesus Christ in all his glory We thank you that he was no coward. We thank you that he was clear about who he was so that we might embrace him and love him as he is in truth, our God in the flesh. We thank you, Father, for sending your Son into this world. We thank you, O Son, for coming to deliver us from our sins and to pay the price for our sin. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for making these things known to us, for opening our eyes to the truth. We love you, our great and blessed triune God, in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.